0: Welcome to a special bonus episode of the Mercatus Policy Download. I'm still your host, Chad Reese. This week, I'm very happy to be able to connect you with Dr. Bruce Yandel, Distinguished Adjunct Fellow at Mercatus, Dean Emeritus at Clemson University, and author of the now-famous Bootleggers and Baptist model for understanding unlikely political alliances. Longtime Mercatus fans will know that Bruce has been providing regular updates on the state of the economy for some time now, and earlier this month, he released the March 2019 edition. Last week, he was on Capitol Hill sharing his economic situation report with policymakers, and we thought we'd share the audio from that meeting with you. In just a minute, Bruce will talk about the December market sell-off, what it means for 2019, the effects of the government shutdown, the future of interest rate policy, and a lot more. But before I turn the mic over to Bruce, I'll also just make a quick request. If you like this kind of content, please let us know. You can find me on Twitter at Chad M. Reese. Or email me at creese at mercatus.gmu.edu and And of course, for those of you who are excited to see the conclusion of our three-part series on resiliency, you can tune in next week when we'll be back on our regular schedule. We'll be talking capital markets. That follows our conversations on housing resiliency and banking resiliency. So we're happy to close out the series talking about principle-based regulation. And I would say I won't spoil the rest of it, but I can't because we haven't had the conversation yet. Until then, drop me a line and let me know if you'd like to hear from Bruce more often on the download. And as always, thanks for listening.
1: you very much. What a pleasure to be with you today on such a lovely day to be inside, and uh, I guess a little bit of a quieter time for you with uh, things in recess, but it doesn't mean that you're not busy. So thanks so much for coming. Thanks for your interest in Mercatus and what the Mercatus Center does. If we had been in this room about a year ago, talking about the economy, we would have been talking about an economy that just was barely walking. I described it then as a sleepwalking economy, and there was a question, when is this thing going to wake up? When will we finally see some meaningful growth in GDP? And by meaningful, I mean a number like 3%, which is the long-term average over many, many years. Our economy was just sort of sleeping along, it seemed, at the time, but then it woke up. And as it woke up, GDP growth picked up. Employment growth picked up at a, to a very impressive level. We began to see unemployment rates at, for all practical purposes, all-time highs. Not really all-time, but far enough back for you to exaggerate and almost say that. For the first time in years... We now have more job openings than we have total unemployed in the nation, more than one job per person. Of course, the jobs are in the wrong place or the wrong field, but nonetheless, evidence of a lot of slack in terms of opportunity, more than one place to look, a booming economy. And so what had been in 2016 and an economy that was growing at 1.6% real GDP growth, kind of sleepy, woke up and by the time we closed out this past year it was cranking along at 3.1%. In fact things had gotten so good in the 2018 economy that a lot of commentators, a good number, began to call it a Goldilocks economy. And you remember Goldilocks. Everything was just right. If we could just keep it the way it is. And it was really funny, about the time the commentators, several of them were saying, we've got Goldilocks. Wouldn't you know, the bottom fell out. Along came December. And so in December of last year, suddenly bad things began to happen including a 35-day government shutdown. By bad things, I mean bad things for GDP growth. There may be good reasons for the things that happened, but we had a 35-day government shutdown. The folks at the Council of Economic Advisors did a lot of studies, and they said for every week that you have the shutdown, you can subtract .15 points from GDP growth, and we were shut down for five weeks. 5 times 1.5 subtracted from GDP growth doesn't take it down a percentage point, but it takes a bite out of it. Then we had tariff debates and issues, and we wondered what China was going to do. And then the Fed came and met in that December for their December meeting, and lo and behold, raised rates the way the Fed does. Financial markets immediately reacted, The Dow Jones plummeted, the S&P 500, and what had been a Goldilocks economy just didn't seem to be Goldilocks anymore. And so now we're taking a look at the economy in this year. And as described to you, we went from this sleepwalking to a just right Goldilocks economy. And now the question is, is Goldilocks still with us? Or is this economy... Hesitating a bit, I think it is. Will we continue to see better than 3% growth, which is what happened as we closed out last year? That gets to be the question. But everybody who knows Goldilocks knows the rest of the story, right? Do you remember the rest of the story with Goldilocks? You remember she got in, she ate the porridge, and oh, the porridge was good. She said, Mmm, it's just right. And then after eating the porridge and it was just right, she remember she tried out beds and found one that was just right. And then what happened? Anybody remember? Give me a hint. The three bears, they came home. And so there they were. They scared hell out of Goldilocks. And Goldilocks says, hey, let me out of here. And Goldilocks, the story ends not on a pleasant note, other than the fact that Goldilocks escaped. And so here we've got bears on our hands, and we get a question then from the standpoint of our economy, which I describe to you as levitating, rising from 1.6 to 2.3 to 3.1, real GDP growth levitating. And now I think what we have is a hesitating economy because of these growling bears. And so we want to look at that. But let's look at at this Goldilocks appearance. What you see here is quarterly real GDP growth for the nation. I'm showing you data that goes back to the first quarter of 2013. We've got a nice trend line on those fairly recent observations. Doesn't it feel good? And in second quarter of last year, we hit 42 Then in third quarter, we hit 3.4. We are bouncing around that trend line. And then fourth quarter came in a little weaker at 2.6, but when you put it all together, it's 3.1. We broke 3%, and it felt good. And so as we look at that trend line, there's a tendency for anybody to say, well, wow, why can't this just continue? Let's just let this thing roll. Why not four? Well, why not five? But it turns out that there is a speed limit for GDP growth and it's set in the simplest way by just two variables, just two items of information, all you have to have. You don't have to talk about taxes and revenue and fiscal policy and monetary policy, just two things, the number of people who go to work every day, are there more or are there less? Are they the same? And how productive are they when they are at work? Just two variables, growth of the labor force and growth of productivity added together, determine real GDP growth. And so you might say, well, let's go for 4%. Then we can begin to interpret, well, what would that mean in terms of labor force growth and growth in productivity? Is that technically feasible, given where we are now? We want to explore that. And so now, in thinking about the economy we are in right now, there are estimates that are credible, I would say, that run from 2.3% real GDP growth for this year to 3.2%. The most recent budget that was put together by the White House makes an assumption of 3.2% real GDP growth for this year and the people at the Council of Economic Advisors did a doggone good job with their forecast last year. They used a technical term when describing it. They said, we nailed it. <laughs> they hit the number right on the head in terms of their forecast. And so now they're saying they're looking at 3.2 for this year and going on out to 2020, 2024, healthy, close to 3 oh, 3.2 growth rates as we go out. Most other forecasters are not that optimistic, so there's a range there. We want to explore it. But let's look at this waking up and sleeping economy so that you can see how graphic the situation is and how it turns. You're looking here at employment growth. This is growth, employment growth for the nation, And there's the sleepwalking phase, hits bottom, long about January of 2018. I was saying, if we had been in this room a year ago talking about the economy, it was a sleepwalking economy. Then it hits bottom, turns around, and wham, we get that. Now, it didn't get that just because it was manna from heaven or all of a sudden the cherry blossoms looked beautiful or something happened. There were policies that began to have an effect on the economy, and I think perhaps the most meaningful one in the turnaround was tax cuts began to have an effect. Regulatory reform begins to have an effect. But now we see it very graphically in this data. Now, same picture, different variable. What I'm showing you here is banking activity for the nation. This is the growth rate of all commercial and industrial loans made by the banking system, and you see a similar picture. The growth rate is falling in the sleepwalking phase, bottoms out about January 2018, and then here we go again, which would cause one who's an optimist, and I'm included in that clan. My mother loved me a lot when I was little, and so I've always been optimistic. And so if you're an optimist, as I am, you want to say, well, let's just just assume this thing is going to keep going, but don't forget the speed limit. Now, what I'm showing you here are ingredients that give rise to the wake-up. I mentioned the tax cut. What I have plotted here for you to observe is growth in investment in new capital for the nation... And I would argue that's triggered by tax cuts. And so you're looking at growth in new investment, not residential. This is in capital. That's the blue line. The red line is growth in productivity. You get more capital, the same number of people going to work every day, but they have more capital, there's going to be more productivity. How do we get more productivity? find some way to provide incentives to investors so that they will invest more. And here we're seeing the result of that through 2018. Right there. Now, here's the other variable folded into it. What I'm showing you here is growth in the labor force and growth in productivity for the U.S. economy. And we're right there at the very end there, that's the fourth quarter of 2018, and you see both of those variables now spiking up. And if you stared at this chart as long as I have, only my cat and I spend as much time as a few other people do looking at data, you would add those two observations together there at the end, and guess what? If you added the growth of the labor force to growth in productivity, you would get 3.2%, which is what the White House assigned at the Council of Economic Advisors for projected growth for this year. And so, using their technical language, I would say they nailed it. Maybe they looked at this same data. Maybe they looked at other data. But nonetheless, there are data out there Current data, it doesn't mean it's going to be that way next quarter, but current data saying we've got a good chance of staying in the 3% neighborhood. Now, this chart has a lot of information in it. Of the of the data and charts that I will show you and we talk about today, this is my favorite. The reason is because it has a lot of information in it. Let's go back just a minute to what I said. I'll repeat We only need two ingredients to know what GDP growth is going to be. Growth in the labor force and growth in productivity of labor. I've taken those two numbers and I have added them together. I stacked one bar on the other. And now you're looking at data that goes back to to the 1980s and comes forward. And now I ask you, as you look at the most current period, And now you reflect on the 1990s, or the 1980s, and I ask you, do you think we're going to see those decades repeating for GDP growth? And if you think that way, what's going to be the driver? Because as you can tell, we are not in the same world in the current periods like the world we were in two decades ago. The big difference is the red bar. The red bar is growth in productivity. What you're looking at in the 1990s is a revolution that occurred, and some people called it the dot-com revolution what we see there is a revolution that is based on the development of new software, new information technology. When that get at, got added to growth in the labor force, you get some tall spikes. And so now there's a question. Will we have something like that repeating? We can't say where it will come from or what it might be. But if we expect to see this country booming again, in the next decade, it's got to come from that because labor force growth is rather pale. We have removed the welcome mat for immigrants, and so that part of labor force growth is not going to be as exciting as it has been in the past. The baby boomers, bless their hearts, have retired. And now this next group, which is equal to the baby boomers in number, the millennials, They're at work, but they are still young in the workforce, which means their skill levels and their experience levels are not as high because they're young in the workforce. And so now we're playing with this. So where will the stimulus come from if we're going to get repeats? The assumptions that are in the budget that I mentioned that the White House put together to generate their optimistic view Call for more tax cuts, calls for more regulatory reform. And I would say that means hoping that we're going to see some red bar growth as we go forward. That's our situation now. Any staring at that chart say you're making a big bet if you think you're going to see a repeat in the next three or four years. And so, you know, when we had this Goldilocks economy, it was a beautiful day. You're driving down a road. When I look at at this slide, it reminds me of a time when it was Friday. the The week was over. For many years, I was in the industrial machinery business. I had finished up my week's work not too far from Athens, Georgia. The road looked just about like that. I was so happy to have finished up the week's work that I was driving along singing at the top of my voice. Does anybody here ever sing when you're driving along by yourself? Okay, wonderful. Just two people? Oh my, three? All right, come on, fess up. So I was just singing at the top of my voice, cruising down this road. I looked out the window to the driver's side and there was a state patrolman doing this to me. And so I pulled off on the shoulder of the road, rolled down the window, and I said, can I help you? And he said, I don't think you can help me, mister. Do you ever look in your rearview mirror? Uh, I said, sometimes. He said, I've been following you for 10 miles with my red light on, blue, whatever color it was, and you're going 80 miles an hour on 55-mile territory. He says, have you ever spent time in jail? And I said, not yet. (laughs) And he said, well, we're going to Watkinsville, Georgia. I'm going to turn you into the sheriff there, and unless you happen to be loaded down with a good bit of cash, you'll probably spend the night there in Watkinsville because we don't take credit cards. It so happened I had enough to pay the fine and then came back to court later. So sometimes when you're singing, wonderful things happen and sometimes not so wonderful. But in our case, we've got an economy... We've got an economy that's just going along. Great, look, Goldilocks and then whammo. One of these blasted bears comes along and this one is (laughs) trade wars. Trade wars. More tariffs? Roll some back? There is tariff uncertainty. The general theme of that is called regime uncertainty, which means I don't know what the king is going to do. It's called regime uncertainty. Will the negotiator get with China next week and continue to postpone the second increase on tariffs on Chinese goods, or will we back down and get back to the way it was before, or what? Depending on who you are and how those tariffs affect you, you have a huge organized interest group on both sides of that question, and so now we've got trade wars. Then, whammo, we get another bear, Fed policy. But it's possible to take the teeth out of this bear or to declaw this bear. And according to what I read in this morning's paper, which was a summary of the Open Market Committee's discussions yesterday, the Fed has said, we're backing up. They have retractable claws. I love cats because cats have that marvelous retractable claw. And the Fed has a retractable claw. And now the Fed has, says we're pulling our claws in for a while. But don't forget, we still got them. And now the Open Market Committee is saying in words, in so many words, don't expect to see any more interest rate increases this ye- this year. And so maybe that bears okay. But then there's one more. That's the third one. Deficits and debt. The neat thing about this bear is it doesn't make a lot of noise, but it surely has been fed well. Our deficits increase 77% year over year. And so that bear's getting bigger, but it doesn't growl very much. And when it does, people say, let's just kick the can down the road. We've made it okay so far. Let the next group deal with it. And so we've got that bear, and it may become important as we look a little closer. I think the trade war bear is the more concerning one it is to me, and now this is to give you some a measure of concern depending on where you hail from in the United States. The map you're looking at is a map... Of county data, every county in the United States has been colored based on the number of people employed in exporting industries. In exporting industries. If you like the idea of being a global player in a global economy, you want to be dark blue. And so you can stare at your county or your state And you can begin to look at the states where there are a lot of dark blue counties, like that group right there. High exporting economies. When trade wars occur, these are the counties that are put at risk. And there are two other states east of the Mississippi River that are heavy. The two Carolinas. The two Carolinas are major exporting economies, very similar to the exporting strength of Michigan and Ohio and Pennsylvania. The two Carolinas, just because I live there and keep up with it fairly closely, the number one destination of goods produced in North Carolina and in South Carolina, the number one destination is China. China is also the number one source of imports coming into those two states. 30% of what BMW produces in South Carolina goes to China. And so these are examples of risk that begins to show up, specifically when the main country of concern is China. That puts those counties at risk and It's already showing up in data that we'll talk about as we go forward. Just for the purpose of clarification, because sometimes we're not real careful in how we speak about international trade, I tried to be very careful a few sentences ago when I said the number one destination. I did not say the number one trading partner. The reason I didn't is because countries don't trade with each other. People do. People write contracts with other people. Now, countries do trade bombs and war material and aircraft with each other, but trade takes place between private citizens and businesses on two sides of a border. And so what we're talking about is what individuals might be doing. Then there's the question which has plagued our administration, this administration, and previous ones. Why do we have such a persistent trade imbalance? When we look at our trade account, why is it that we as a people just keep buying more from everybody else than they do for us? Are we sick or what is it? I've got that problem with Publix. You know, I went in there the other day, Dot gave me a list and I went in Publix to shop. And when I went in there, I'd been thinking about this stuff, and I thought, gee whiz, we buy a lot of stuff from Publix, but they don't buy anything from me. What's wrong with us, or what's wrong with them? And I said to myself, I'm going to go and see the manager, and I'm going to tell him, look friend, I've been buying all this stuff from you, you don't buy from me, I want you to buy a lecture from me, I'll give it in the meat market, and I'll give a lecture every Friday in the meat market. Let's start balancing this. Then I thought, well, by George, Aldi is the same. Dollar Tree is the same. I buy all this stuff from these people. They don't buy anything from me. I'm going to get tough. I'm going to tell all these people who sell food, look, friend, you either get serious and start buying my lectures or I'm just not going to buy anything from you. And then what happened? It sunk in. Am I going to learn how to grow my own food? And so I decided that I wouldn't talk to that manager. The reason that we have a deficit in our trade accounts with practically everyone, not really, but almost, is that we as a people consume more than we produce every year, year in and year out. We consume more than we produce. Isn't that wonderful? It's miraculous in a way. But for us to do that, there have to be people somewhere else who produce more than they consume every year. I mean, it's got to add up after all. And they better be big because we're big. China's big. They have a very high savings rate. They produce far more than they consume every year. And guess what? They will take pieces of paper that we print here, just green pieces of paper. They'll take them and give us their goods. There's another account. We worry about the balance imbalance, or some people worry about the imbalance in the trade account, but there's a second account. It's called the capital account. Nobody ever talks about the capital account. I don't think there's any political payoff in talking about the capital account. There is a payoff in talking about the trade account because you can get people really riled up about their jobs and their future when you say, we keep buying all this stuff from these guys that produce what you produce. If we could close the door on them, happy times are here again for you. But on the capital count, for example, there's a new Volvo plant that is online just outside of Charleston, South Carolina. It cost $500 million to build. Volvo, as you know, is a Chinese company. $500 million, and you say, well, where did they get the $500 million to build that plant? from all the goods that we bought from people in China. And so on the capital account, the funds come back. But that transaction does not show up. It's not called trade. No one that I heard from in Washington gave a speech about the wonderful Volvo plant that the Chinese were building in South Carolina that's going to employ 2,000 people. Instead, what we got were speeches about China's unfair trade practices and the need for us to find a way to get more balance. There's validity in that concern, but the books do balance. It's just they don't balance on the trade side. That's the foreign direct investment that shows up. And so here we are always at an intersection with respect to economic policies and economic questions, and we're hesitating, and the hesitation causes uncertainty. Our regime uncertainty. Evidence that our economy is showing uncertainty shows up in a number of ways. The first item I mentioned there is that when investors are uncertain, they tend to say, I think I'm going to pull over to the sideline and rest this one out a little while. That is, they sell equity, they sell stocks, and they hold cash. That's happening in unprecedented amounts right now. And so there's evidence of the uncertainty when we look in that direction. When a firm wants to expand its production, it can do that in two ways. You can hire permanent employees, put them on the payroll, or you can hire temps to do the same work. The higher your level of uncertainty with respect to the future of your sales and business in general, the more likely you will go with temps. And so I can look at a ratio of temps to permanence for a state economy, for the national economy, and I can have a barometer of uncertainty. Right now, the ratio is leaning toward temps as opposed to permanence reflecting a question. We want to continue to increase our production or maintain it because, after all, this is Goldilocks. But I'm not real sure what's going to be happening as we move down the road. Then firms can give people increases in pay when they feel optimistic about the future. Or they can say, your pay is going to be the same, but we're going to a system of bonuses. Bonuses are temporary. If performance continues and business stays good, you're going to get a nice quarterly bonus. If it doesn't, you won't get a bonus. I won't change pay. And so now more firms are going to bonus and incentives, and sometimes they do other things. For example, start taking one of the pickup trucks home every weekend. we got a bunch of them out in the parking lot. We won't put that on your W-2 form. You just got a second automobile for the weekends. We'll do that instead of giving you a raise in pay. These are the things that we see going on in the economy. Then there are revisions in investment plans. The president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta recently sent questionnaires to every manufacturing firm in the Atlanta district focusing primarily, only focusing on trade wars. His question was, have you made any decisions in the last quarter with respect to planned expansions of your plant or hiring because of trade war concerns? A large number said yes. Next question, have you reduced your plans, kept them the same, or increased them? 25% announced that they had decreased their activities because of those uncertainties. And then the other thing that happens, which is sort of interesting, we have tariffs that were placed on aluminum and steel back in August a year ago for everybody. But then we set up a system so that if you wanted to appeal, after all, you have First Amendment rights, Once the announcement was put in the Federal Register, if you're concerned about this and you want to make an appeal, you can. Maybe you can get an exemption. So far, something like 50,000 people have appealed for exemptions from the tariffs, and a lot of people have gotten an exemption. But in the machinery business, where people build machines using aluminum and steel, there's a question. Will we raise the price of our machine? Will we change the menu price? If this is certain, yes, we will. If it's uncertain, no. And so what you see in the machinery industry is a series of surcharges. You just bought yourself a machine. Here's the invoice. Price of the machine, $1.5 million. Aluminum and steel surcharge as a separate item. If the tariff goes away, the surcharge goes away. It's an indication of a hesitating economy. But as I mentioned to you, the bear that I referred to as deficits and debt, which doesn't growl very loudly, but it's getting fed very well, getting bigger, is what I call the elephant in the room. And here's why. If you look at the budget of the United States government and say, okay, what are the big items? The number one item, there it is, the first item is a trillion dollars, social Security benefits. So social Security is your big item in the budget. Second biggest item is health care. Just call it a trillion dollars. It's about like social security. The third item in the budget is defense. Not a trillion, but headed that way, 892 billion. There's your first three big ones, And now the one of concern. Interest on the debt, $324 billion. It ranks number four in relative magnitude. There's that bear. All of the rest of government, the whole thing is $391 billion. All of the rest of government. Now keep your eye on all of the rest and on interest. If interest rates go up, that number is going to grow. If they stay the same, it'll stay the same. Other than the fact that the deficit's getting larger. So even then it will go up. And now I looked back at the average cost of the debt through time. I looked at some treasury data. I said, okay, what if we went, what if interest rates went to where they were in 2008 to 4.65%? If so, Debt interest costs would rise from 324 to 521 and we would have how much change left over to fund all of the rest of government 191 billion dollars that's when the bear roars now that's not going to happen what i mean by that We're not going to have a situation where Congress says, well, we're going to pay all that interest and we're going to keep paying Social Security and keep paying health care and keep paying defense. And now, ladies and gentlemen, we'll figure out how to run the rest of the government on $191 billion. That is not going to happen. A more believable scenario is that when interest rates begin to rise again, and they will, when they begin to rise again, this begins to bite And Congress will then wrestle with something about Social Security benefits, extending the age, reducing the benefits, something about health care, something about defense. And congressmen and women will do their dead-level best to keep funding the rest of government. But it's the interest rate cost that is the driver. That's the point. That is the driver. And as long as the interest rates stay low, and according to the announcement in this morning's paper from the Fed, that's their intent, then that bear will keep its claws in for maybe another year or two. Now, all of this raises the question Do we have a recession in the works in 2019? And my answer is no. Now, recessions don't just happen because the economy gets old and frail the way I am. Economies don't die from old age. They die from axe murders. That is, the Fed hits them in the head with a hammer, <laughs> saying, hey, we got to do something about inflation. Hit the brakes. Raise the rates. Slow down the economy. Oops, I'm sorry, home builders. But this is the price you got to pay while we get the economy stable again. So the Fed hits the economy in the head. We had a recession that was caused by 9-11. Terrorists can hit the country in the head and cause a recession. And so there are exogenous events that are out there. The ones that have happened historically most frequently are Fed-induced recessions where they were doing their duty and they said, we're going to slow it down. Those are called a technical term, credit crunches. It's like the name of a cereal, isn't it? If put a little sugar on credit crunch and a little cream and, buddy, do you have a meal? <laughs> They're credit crunches. And historically, we've gotten credit crunches frequently enough that you can look at series of data through time leading up to a credit crunch recession and examine the shape, of that data and tell whether the day's data, today's data, looks like that. In other words, there are constellations of data formation that begin to show up that give you an early warning that we are creeping into a recessionary period. The data I look at regularly to see if I see anything say no. Well, what if it were to change tomorrow? The data I look at say if it were to change tomorrow so that the constellation begins to form, it would be a year and a half before you would feel the recession. And so that says 2019 ought to be okay. It doesn't say anything about 2020. But right now, based on what the Fed has said, no recession. But unless your community is growing in population, unless people are deciding to move your way, You're not going to get much GDP increase because it is driven by people. And so, you know, where should we head, Paul? Let's go where we can find work. Well, that's easy to do. But I'm telling you, if they're going to come our way, they better be equipped and decorated with Clemson colors. (laughs) And if they do come our way like that, we'll let them tailgate at the next football game in (laughs) Clemson town. These look like some of our good folks anyhow. <laughs> what I'm showing you here, look at your state. This is employment growth. I've used a device that enables me to identify leading states, lagging states, states that are slipping and states that are gaining This is done by looking at the growth rate of the population over the period of time, 2007 and 16, were you growing at greater than the average for the nation and were you growing at greater than the average for the nation in the last year? If you say yes to both of those, then you can be light green. If you look at the states, the 22 states, east of the Mississippi River and bordering the Mississippi River, you will see that there are only five states out of those 22 that are light green. Those are the leading states, Massachusetts, the two Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida. The stronger growth then is out toward the west. gives you an idea of how growth is occurring, and that tells us where GDP growth at a state level has been and most likely will be going. Then United Van Lines analyzes all the home movers every year. This is where people vote with their feet. And this is their most recent report for 2018. The dark blue states are the states where there are more people moving in than moving out. (coughs) Excuse me. The yellow states are where there are more people moving out than moving in. There are two shades of yellow, and there are two shades of blue. And so this again gives us an indication of where GDP growth will get better at the state level because it is driven by how many people go to work every day. And so now you can look at your state and make a bit of an assessment. This is population growth. We were talking about employment growth, and this is population growth growth. For the same period, and there's the high growth east of the Mississippi River right there. And west of the Mississippi River is where the muscle really is showing up. So, 2019, the Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia turns out leading indicators for the state. They don't do it quite every month, but almost. They turn out maps, and that's the map there for December. That's their most recent one for December of 2018. You want to be dark green. That's the highest growth six months from now. It's a leading indicator. You can look at your state and see what those leading indicators are saying. You don't want to be flesh colored. That's the color for Michigan. That says Michigan will be in a recession in six months. That's the picture there. Dark green looks good for West Virginia and Kentucky. It suggests that the White House coal policy has had a beneficial effect on GDP growth for West Virginia and Kentucky. It may be the tariffs on products have placed some hardship on Michigan. But here's the thing that I find interesting. That's December. Remember, you want to be dark green. That's September. There were a lot more dark green states in September than there were in December. Fasten your seatbelts. That's what it looked like in June. And so when I tell you that I think we have a hesitating economy affected by uncertainty, We can now look at a series of readings of economic uncertainty translated into leading indices, and we can see how it shows up across the states. There's a question as to what the next map will look like. These maps suggest that we will not be seeing 3.2% real GDP growth this year. But there's always another robin that can show up. And so, (coughs) excuse me, that is what I think we will see. The error in these numbers comes on interest rates. And this is based on what the Fed said yesterday. I don't think we will see 3.10. But basically, I'm thinking we will see 2.3 to 2.8, fairly mild interest rates and so forth. And now, to get real, because someone who had heard me speak before made reference to this. We've been looking at a lot of numbers and lots of charts. What really matters is what real people do and real measures of the economy. This is a shot off my front porch in Clemson. Dot and I live right across from the train station. You can see it sitting over there. It was an old house. Our house is about 120 years old. We like old houses. We're kind of nuts. We like trains. And we like cats. There are about 20 trains that come by our house every 24 hours. Can you imagine that? If you live in a place like this for two or three weeks, you stop hearing them. You don't notice them. You just turn the TV up a little bit when the train comes by. And so... Most of the trains that come by are freight trains. We have one passenger train that serves us. I can walk across the street, get on a train, come to Washington. Get on the train at 10 o'clock at night and be here at 9 o'clock in the morning. It's a nice ride, if it's on time. Get on that same train at 7 o'clock in the evening, get back home at 5 in the morning. So that's pretty cool, but it doesn't always work. Most we get freight. And most of the freight looks like those containers. I know what's in every one of those containers. And now you will know because I'm going to tell you. The reason I love living here and I love to watch those trains is, that, is it because it represents a movement of goods to people who want those goods in their possession shipped by people who want to ship those goods away. The people who ship that stuff prefer the money that somebody is paying to the goods they're shipping. The people waiting at the other end can't wait for the goods to arrive. They want to get rid of their money. They want the goods. What I have just described is called gains from trade. Both parties are made better off when the trains are running. The longer the train, the greater the happiness What's in all of those containers? It's happiness. They're loaded down with happiness. It's the same thing with people getting on the passenger trains. I love to watch them get on the train across from my house. And sometimes I see them crying as they're leaving. And I say, let my people go. You know, If you, <clears throat> if you don't want to be in Clemson, God help you. Get on that train and go where you want to be. It's about happiness, and that's what freedom is about. That's what free markets are about, an effort by ordinary people to figure out how they can improve their lives and the lives of people they love by working and producing something that somebody else is willing to pay for and letting those goods flow. So I want to thank you for your kind attention today, and thank you for your support of Mercatus Programme. <clears throat> We may have, uh, may have time for a uh, question or two if I can keep my answer short. If anybody has a question, I'd love to hear you. Okay, the, the question is, <clears throat> I mentioned that I look at data. The Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City turns out a labor market analysis for the United States. That is, it's a national measure. And they have in that two components. One is called momentum And one is called level. So you can look at the level of activity and the momentum present in the U.S. economy as measured by labor market movement. When you go to that chart, you will see gray bars that identify previous recessions. And so now you're watching this series overlaying recessionary periods and you can do the kind of inspection that I mentioned. The Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta turns out two measures of what I would call economic prosperity or the possibility of recession, again, based on labor market data. Those are the two places that I go to make that kind of inspection. And you can, you can, you can see a good bit with your eyes in terms of what appears to be coming. Thank you. Yes. Yes. We've, we have a revolution occurring in, the tra- in transportation, and so the question has to do with, okay, given this revolution, driverless cars, so on and so forth, electric cars, all of the above, the magnitude can be huge. Will that be so disruptive that we might get a recession or a pretty bad bump in the road as a result of the disruption which comes from this technological change. <clears throat> I, haven't, I haven't thought about it at a detailed level. But here's what I would suggest to you. A market economy, which we have in the world does too, to one degree or another, but a market economy is in a sense is self-correcting. It sets speed limits for how fast the auto industry can make that conversion because they've got to sell it. They've got to sell their product. In order to sell it, there have to be people working and earning enough to buy the product. And so you have a self-correcting device at play. Now, that's not to suggest that there couldn't be some sudden, more rapidly than expected, revolution that occurs. But I don't think that there's anything there. If When we look at the magnitudes as you indicate, it could be frightening. You say, well, look. If all of the trucks that we see on the interstates are suddenly driverless trucks, what's going to happen to those, however many, nine million truck drivers that are equipped to drive trucks? What are they going to be driving? But it won't happen overnight. It will happen gradually. And it could still be disruptive to individuals and individual places. We have, I was talking with someone who is from Hickory, North Carolina right? Well, here we are, right here. If you get into that part of North Carolina, into the Piedmont foothills of North Carolina, you're in a region that has been hit about as hard as any region in the U.S. in, recent, in modern times by a transformation, in this case, from textile manufacturing, furniture manufacturing, and apparel, a real revolution that occurred. Those industries are not there anymore. There were some rough years there were, still are some rough years for some communities, but they've weathered and prospered even with that behind them. But you've put your finger on a fascinating area of concern. Yes, sir. Those numbers, that's an index. Let's go back if we were, see if I can do it without taking up too much time. Yeah. <clears throat> what you're looking at there is an index created based on a number of variables like housing permits labor variables, they turn it into an index. And that index has to do with the future coincidental index. In other words, what is is it really going to be like six months from now? When these numbers, these then are converted into percentages. So if you were to go to Federal Reserve Bank of Philadelphia, if you go to their homepage, click, you will see, Leading indicators. You'll get that map and you will also get an explanation. And you could also download the Excel file.
0: So it's it's multiple variables,
1: not just. There are multiple variables. If I remember, it's less than 12. But there are multiple variables that go into the index. I think that's one o'clock. Thank you again. If anyone else has a question, I'm happy to stick around and do my best to speak to your questions.